Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. It's been 3,107 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 189 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, Ukrainian forces have taken the initiative on the battlefield, with Russian military leaders moving assets around concerned about another large offensive starting in Zaporizhia. Second, multiple Russian mill bloggers are reporting that Russian troops in Kherson are not getting artillery support, nor is the Air Force operating along the line of conflict. Third, Ukraine has liberated at least four settlements that we can reveal and have caused a technical encirclement of Russian troops in two towns. Fourth, the risk of Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure in an attempt to break morale is exceptionally high and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Fifth, we continue to believe there is a significant chance that Russian forces will abandon their offensives in Bakhmut and near Avdivka and relocate those troops to Zaporizhia. The Russian Ministry of Defense made this decision in May during the campaign to capture Luhansk. Sixth, the Russian Third Army Corps is being rushed into Ukraine with detachments in Donetsk and Zaporizhia. We don't believe they will have a significant impact, as they are likely to be deployed piecemeal. Seventh, the Russian Ministry of Defense is using the Ukrainian media blackout to flood the news cycle and social media channels with misinformation, causing several prominent Russian mill bloggers to call out the falsehoods. And finally... Not all victories on the battlefield are kinetic. Ukraine's continuous attacks on Russian ground lines of communication, or GLOCs, that's supply lines, indicate they plan to collapse Russian resistance by forcing them to consume their existing supplies. An army can fight without many critical assets, including food and water, but it can't fight without ammunition. If you've been with us for other episodes this week, you know that we've shuffled our segments a bit with the launch of the counteroffensive. So now, we're starting our regional updates with Kherson and Mykolaiv. The opening phase of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kherson continued, with several settlements confirmed as liberated within the opening hours. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine is maintaining a media blackout, which the Kremlin is taking advantage of by spreading disinformation. 
Ukrainian forces liberated Ternovipoti, 30 kilometers north of Kherson. Russian social media accounts claimed they captured Zeleny High, but the village fell under Russian control on August 16th. Russian mill bloggers claim that Ukraine liberated Mirn, which is 27 kilometers northwest of Kherson. The same accounts, though, claim that Ukraine did not liberate Pravdine, Soldatske, or Oleksandrivka in Kherson, which are northwest, north, and southwest of Mirn. We find it improbable that Mirn is liberated because Ukrainian forces would then be surrounded. Either Oleksandrivka or Pravdine is liberated, or Mirn is still under Russian control. It is worth noting that the general staff reported that Ukrainian positions in Oleksandrivka were shelled. Sukistavok was liberated on August 29th during the counteroffensive's opening hours. Rybar was dismissive of the reports in the morning, describing Sukistavok as an unimportant speck on the map. In a later post, they admitted the settlement was liberated and the Russian command post had been abandoned. Geolocated video showed Arkhangelske was liberated on August 29th by Ukrainian and pro-Ukrainian Chechen forces. We've maintained that Arkhangelske was contested since mid-July, and in our assessment, the town was taken quickly because there was only a small Russian presence. Heavy fighting was reported in Olkhin and Viskopilia, with pro-Russian accounts claiming that Ukraine has established fire control around both settlements, creating a technical encirclement. Some quick assessment. The loss of control of Arkhangelske has likely severed the main G-lock to Viskopilia. Securing Novopetrivka would force Russian troops to retreat across 12 kilometers of open wheat fields to the south or attempt a breakthrough in the southeast direction. To quote Sun Tzu, build your opponent a golden bridge to retreat. Ukrainian forces hammered Russian positions across the entire line of conflict with artillery, rockets from MLRS, and HIMARS strikes. The Antonovsky Bridge in Kherson, the partially constructed barge bridge adjacent to it, and the ferry were repeatedly attacked. The Antonovsky Mist Railroad Bridge was also struck, along with the Derivsky Bridge that crosses the Inulets River. Satellite images show the bridge is heavily damaged with a large hole. A rocket attack destroyed an ammunition depot in Russian-occupied Bereslav. Another ammunition depot at the railroad station in Russian-occupied Tavrysk was also destroyed. Military targets in Nova Kohovka were repeatedly struck throughout the day. Russian-appointed occupied Kherson Gauleiter Kirill Stremusov shared a recorded message about the ongoing counteroffensive. Sharp-eyed open-source analysts identified the recording location as the Marriott Hotel in Voronezh, Russia. Private military company, or PMC, Wagner Group Telegram Channel Greyzone ridiculed the claims by the Russian Ministry of Defense that 1,200 Ukrainian troops had been killed and the counteroffensive was already over. The account reported that the situation was not good in Kherson, with Russian forces complaining about a lack of artillery support, fire mission requests going unanswered, and no air support. Vladlin Tatarsky made the same claims that besieged Russian troops' requests for artillery and aviation were going unanswered. Tatarsky also asked how it was possible that Ukraine could mount a counteroffensive involving multiple brigades 
that went completely undetected by the Russian Ministry of Defense and commanders in the field. In a sign that discipline among Russian troops was breaking down before the counteroffensive, internal Russian reports show that three Russian soldiers were killed and two wounded in a shootout in a Kherson bar on June 19th. Russian FSB agents went to the bar to remove the drunken soldiers, and a gun battle broke out between the groups. It was one of many incidents revealed in the disciplinary report submitted to the Kremlin that was leaked to the press. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 30th. You'll find it in yesterday's episode around minute three. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. Russia was accused of shelling the Green Corridor prepared for the International Atomic Energy Agency inspection team to visit the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. On Russian state media channel 1, Olga Skabeva accused the IAEA of planning to hide explosives in the plant during the inspection to later detonate and blame Russia for the incident. Early this morning, Director General Mariano Grossi reported that the IAEA team was departing Kiev to Zaporizhia and planned to stay for, quote, several days to evaluate the situation. Grossi also added that they would attempt to establish, quote, permanent representation, but did not clarify if that meant some team members would stay behind after their inspection. Shortly after departing Kiev, the Russian occupation head of the Zaporizhia region, Yevin Balitsky, said that the IAEA would only be allowed to stay at the plant for a day, saying, quote, If they say some elements need to be attended to, we'll be able to do so. So far, the stated goal is to inspect the power plant's operation. This seems pretty vague to us. End quote. Nikopol suffered its heaviest barrage in over a week, with Ukrainian officials claiming that over 40 Grad rockets were fired from MLRS launchers located within the nuclear plant compound. We can't confirm the veracity of these claims. The acting mayor of Zaporizhia, Anatoly Kurlov, reported that Ukrainian air defense shot down Russian cruise missiles near the city. There were no injuries, and the debris landed in unpopulated areas. Now to the Donbass region. Russian forces didn't make any ground attacks in southern Zaporizhia. The general staff reported that Novoprokopivka, Robotin, and Kopany were shelled. All three are south of Orikhiv and well south of the known line of conflict. Orikhiv was hit by over 200 grad rockets fired by Russian MLRS on August 28th. Neither belligerent has reported ground fighting in the area, but the artillery duels have caught our attention. Rockets fired from HIMARS destroyed an ammunition depot in Russian-occupied Tokmak. Occupation leaders claim a grain elevator was destroyed, but we've never seen a grain fire launch cooking off ammunition. Maybe it was a grain silo filled with popcorn? Quick assessment here. We'll continue to monitor activity south of Orihiv and near Polohi, both of which have been hotspots for these artillery duels. The general staff also reported that elements of the newly formed 3rd Army Corps had arrived in Zaporizhia for deployment to the front. Some Russian units in Zaporizhia have not been rotated since February. It's unclear if the 3rd Army Corps will replace the combat ineffective units that need reconstitution. Some more assessment. These units appear well-equipped, 
but have undergone accelerated training of two to four weeks and have not experienced battlefield conditions. The value of additional tanks and light infantry can't be discounted, but the overall quality of the troops is pretty low, and it's unlikely they will have a significant impact on the existing situation. Even if they achieved tactical victories or stabilized the security situation in Melitopol, Russian forces have been entirely unable to leverage smaller battlefield wins to achieve larger goals. The Russian occupation head of the Zaporizhia region, Baletsky, reported that due to, quote, family circumstances, he has moved from Melitopol to Crimea. The security situation in Melitopol has rapidly deteriorated through August, with a widespread insurgency targeting Russian troops and their collaborators. Multiple Gauleiters and collaborators have been assassinated across the occupied territories in the last three weeks. The same day Balitsky reported his relocation, a series of partisan attacks rocked the city. Insurgents have stepped up their attacks, destroying a Russian military base, a restaurant frequented by Russian intelligence agents with the FSB, and an ammunition depot in Makivka. Exiled Melitopol Mayor Ivan Fedorov reported that, quote, a small but very important military unit was affected by the attacks. Makivka has been a hotspot of insurgent activity since August 24th. In southwest Donetsk, the First Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, remains combat ineffective. There were only reports of positional fighting and reconnaissance in force west of Donetsk. DNR forces tried to improve their positions in Optin, Pervomaiske, and Krasnohorivka, but all three advances failed, and DNR units suffered heavy losses. The general staff and pro-Russian accounts reported intense fighting south of Piski on the E-50 ring road and other locations close to the village. Based on the reports of continued fighting, we maintain the settlement is contested. There are reports that elements of the newly created Russian 3rd Army Corps from the Central District are also in Donetsk and will be used to reinforce DNR units. DNR forces fought positional battles in the eastern part of Marinka and retreated to Oleksandrivka when failing to gain new ground. In Bakhmut, private military company or PMC Wagner Group, supported by the Luhansk People's Republic or LNR, continued attacks on Bakhmut, where the situation remains unchanged. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, indicated extensive fires were burning throughout the city center. North of Bakhmut, Yakovlivka, Solidar, and Bakhmutska were shelled. Further south, LNR separatists continued their attempts to advance on Vesela Dolina. The attack was repulsed, and Russian forces retreated to their defensive lines. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, fighting for Kodema continued, with the town attacked from three sides. We disagree with other analysts assessing Kodema as contested or captured, based on reports from pro-Russian accounts and other contacts. Russian forces continued attempts to advance on Zaitseve and remained unsuccessful. The railroad yards of Mayorsk were again shelled. A missile attack on Ukrainian-controlled Kostyantsenivka knocked out the city's water supply. Long queues formed after local officials set up a distribution center. Our assessment of Bakhmut is the same as it was on August 25th. You'll find it on last Thursday's episode around minute four.
there wasn't any significant ground fighting in northeast Donetsk or Luhansk. The settlements around Siversk were shelled, and there was an airstrike in Ryorivka. Spirna, Berestova, and Bilohorivka in Donetsk along the T-1302 highway were also shelled, while the Russian Air Force attacked Spirna and Ivanodorivka. Our assessment in northeast Donetsk and Luhansk is unchanged from August 18th, which we recapped on last Thursday's episode around minute two or three. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, starting with the Izium axis. Northwest of Izium, Russian forces shelled Husarivka. Russian forces also attacked Shnurki, 12 kilometers from the known line of conflict. Our analysts determined that moving through the area forests and tree-lined rivers would be possible to reach the settlement. The Russian forces were repelled by artillery fire. In our assessment, this is a spoiling attack and is not an indication of a broader offensive. There was insignificant artillery fire along the axis and an airstrike on Prishib. Russian forces are suffering from growing supply issues south of Izium due to attacks by Ukrainian special operation forces and artillery strikes. We're still sticking with our assessment from August 8th, which we last recapped on Monday's episode around minute 12. In northern Kharkiv, there were no reports of ground fighting by the general staff, the Russian Ministry of Defense, local contacts, or pro-Russian sources. Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery, rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, and indirect tank fire along the line of conflict. The general staff reported that Yudi was shelled, implying that Russian forces had withdrawn from the town. Pro-Russian accounts are full of chatter that Ukraine is preparing to restart its counterattack north of Kharkiv. The rumor was started by wanted war criminal and deputy information minister of the Donetsk People's Republic, Daniel Bisonov. Bisonov's claims rarely pass fact-checks, but this rumor may have had a bigger impact. After several loud explosions rocked Bilgorod, Russia on August 29th, large lines formed at the train station with people trying to get aboard the midnight train to Moscow. Ukraine has repeatedly stated it has no intention of invading or attacking Russia, while Russian state media constantly repeats false claims that NATO wants to invade Russia using Ukraine as its proxy. Our assessment in Kharkiv is unchanged from August 12th. We last recapped it on the 19th around minute 9. North in the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported the settlements of Khotin, Rychkivska, and Velikopisarivka were shelled by Russian forces firing from across the international border. Border villages near Khotin were attacked by rockets fired by the Russian Air Force, although the plane never entered Ukrainian airspace. Russian forces also fired across the international border and shelled Chai and Khremyach in the Cherniev Oblast. There weren't any reports of serious damage or casualties. South in the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, Gennady Trukhanov, the mayor of Odessa, came under fire for allegedly saying he supported negotiating with Russia. In a Facebook post, he denied making the statement that first appeared in Russian state media, stating, quote, in order to avoid further reckless manipulations, 
I have to repeat the words I've been saying since 24th of February. The occupiers must be driven out from the entire territory of our country. We will fight until we emerge victorious. Any negotiations will only take place after Russians withdraw from our land. End quote. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukrainian troops are learning how to use the American M-119A3 105mm towed howitzers. The United States has over a thousand of these artillery pieces in reserve, and they've been retired from active service. Training is being done on the most modern version, with digital fire control systems that can provide pinpoint accuracy using GPS-guided shells. Baikar, the maker of the now-famous Bayraktar TB2 combat drone, revealed its new jet-powered combat drone, Bayraktar Kiselelma. Baikar has selected a location in Ukraine to build the state-of-the-art drones, which are more capable than the TB2. Russian air defense jolted the residents of Bilgorod once again, with reports of multiple explosions in the early morning hours. Vyacheslav Gladkov, Russian governor of the Bilgorod Oblast, reported there was no damage or casualties. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Near Chihiv, Russian forces shelled Sarjin Yar, striking a recreation center and water park in a daytime attack while it was in use. Two people were killed. Despite the ongoing war, the location was popular, where people could collect water and get an opportunity to bathe. Exiled Melitopol Mayor Fedorov accused Russia of attacking civilians leaving Zaporizhia through a green corridor with tanks. Russian administrators have been holding civilian convoys at the Vasilivka checkpoint for days in deplorable conditions. Fedorov claims that a large group of cars was cleared to pass. As the convoy entered the, quote, gray zone, a sort of no-man's land, Russian tanks fired on the vehicles, forcing the convoy to stop with refugees scattering. Somehow, no one was injured, and the convoy was allowed to proceed again. In Russian-occupied Mariupol, residents staged a food riot after the Red Cross suspended the distribution of humanitarian aid. Residents gathered to receive food from the relief agency, but organizers stopped the event because so many people showed up and the security situation deteriorated. Petro Andrushenko, an advisor to the exiled mayor of Mariupol, claimed that Russian administrators have stopped the distribution of humanitarian aid and have left the city with little food and drinking water. Residents have taken to planting gardens in public areas, still dotted with the makeshift graves of the dead, and littered with landmines and unexploded shells. People sell their harvest to make some money, with no jobs available in the city. The United Nations reported difficulty accessing the occupied city, with Russian leaders refusing to provide security guarantees to the organization. 
Similar problems have been reported in Russian-occupied Lyman, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, and Rubizhne. At least one civilian was killed in Mykolaiv during rocket and missile attacks. There wasn't additional information available at the time of recording. Disturbing pictures of Ole Mudrik, the commander of the 1st Battalion of the Azov Regiment, appeared online. Mudrik was among the Mariupol defenders who surrendered as part of an international Red Cross brokered deal that instantly soured. Mudrik appears malnourished in the photos, with significant indications that he is being maltreated. Beyond his gaunt appearance, his wrists appear to have ligature marks, indicating he is being tightly tied up or repeatedly handcuffed in captivity. Let's look at some geopolitical news. Mikhail Gorbachev is vilified in modern Russia. His reforms, which led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Iron Curtain, are seen as the root cause of all the current problems in modern Russia. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin-Strelkov wrote the following eulogy. Quote, This creature should not wish for eternal disgrace. He acquired it forever. It makes no sense to curse this creature. Contempt is the best that he deserved and deserves. The only thing I'm curious about is whether he remembered the soul before his death and tried at least before his death to rethink and reevaluate his life. Or did he leave like Vladimir Volfovich, without confession and communion? Comments turned off, in my opinion, the deceased is not worth it for normal Russia, and not only, people to discuss his death on my page. For me, even dead, he will remain none other than Gorby the Jew. End quote. The fall of the Berlin Wall led a KGB agent in Dresden to be filled with rage at the, quote, stab in the back. That mid-level agent would become the de facto dictator of Russia and start a war responsible for the deaths of over 100,000 people in less than six months. His name is Vladimir Putin. Gerbachev came from an ethnic Russian father and an ethnic Ukrainian mother. His family was devout Orthodox Christians, and he was baptized in secret during the darkest days of Stalin's pre-World War II rule. Both of his grandfathers were arrested during the Stalin purge of 1937 and tortured by the secret police. He spent four months living under German occupation in World War II. His father was a soldier in the Great Patriotic War, was wounded and sent home. He studied law, became a lawyer, and moved up the political power chain. By 1978, his ascension in the Communist Party was well on its way. He was named the Central Committee's Secretariat for Agriculture, just in time for three years of disastrous crop production from 1979 to 1981. He determined that agricultural decision-making had become overly centralized and managed from the top down instead of the bottom. He believed that the farmers working the fields had a better understanding of managing production than leaders in the Kremlin. In 1982, Secretary General Leonid Brezhnev died, which started a period of revolving-door leadership for the Communist Party. The line between the old Soviet Union of the Stalin era and a more reformed Soviet Union was beginning to blur. Yuri Andropov was declared the Secretary General, but was already in poor health. Gerbachev was a close ally of Andropov, who leaned on Gerbachev to fulfill some duties of the secretary-general. 
Andropov lived for only 14 months, and there was a push to name Gerbachev the new leader. However, the old-school leaders of the Politburo believed he was too young and named Konstantin Chernenko as the new Supreme Soviet. Chernenko lived for 13 months. When Gerbachev was named secretary-general in March 1985, the Soviet Union was already in collapse. He inherited the failed war in Afghanistan, bleeding the treasury dry, and was now unpopular on the home front. Within the first month of becoming the leader of the Soviet Union, he negotiated a plan to withdraw from the quagmire. Social and economic reforms that started in Poland had swept into Hungary and Yugoslavia. Rubik's Cube was in the hands of 200 million people beyond the Iron Curtain. The Yugo, a Yugoslavian economy car, quote, reflecting the cutting edge of Serbo-Croatian technology, with thanks to actor Dan Aykroyd, had already been introduced at the Los Angeles Auto Show in 1984, emblazoned in red, white, and blue colors. East Germany was a zombie state itching for reform and reunification. Gerbachev wanted to be a reformer, but some of his allies believed he was moving too slowly. On April 26, 1986, everything would change, and Gerbachev would be confronted with how moribund the Soviet Union had become. The Chernobyl nuclear power plant was commissioned between 1978 and 1984. The echoes of the Stalin era had deeply embedded a culture of fear and corruption in Soviet society. Leadership roles weren't based on experience or merit of skill, but political connections. During the plant's construction, aggressive deadlines were set for testing and certification. Missing these deadlines would mean not only the loss of bonus pay, how ironic, but potentially the loss of title if the Communist Party leaders in the Kremlin were dissatisfied. Russian leaders were told that the reactors had met all their testing requirements, even though the tests hadn't been done. Almost all power plants receive the electricity to run them from a different power plant. This way, electrical power is still available if the plant's generators shut down or fail. In the event of a catastrophic failure, diesel generators or jet turbines that run on natural gas can switch on to maintain power to run the plant. In the case of Chernobyl, the diesel generators needed over a minute to create a sufficient amount of electricity to run the plant. The design called for a flywheel within the turbine to continue to spin at sufficient speed to maintain plant operations during that period. Reactor 4 had repeatedly failed the test, the same test the Kremlin had been told was passed during the reactor's commissioning. Plant managers wanted to check the box. If anyone dug for the paperwork, they would have the proof. The turbine failed the test in 1982 and was quietly modified. It failed the test again in 1984. In 1985, the equipment to monitor the test failed, yielding no results. On April 25, 1986, operators attempted the test again. The test was delayed for over 12 hours, and the plant was operated in a non-optimal state. There was a shift change, and now an inexperienced team of engineers unfamiliar with the test procedure had become responsible. Although the reactor was operating well out of the safe margins to do the test, operators proceeded forward. Additional water pumps were activated to keep the reactor cool enough while operating at under 40% of the required power generation to run the test. The cooling system was filled with steam, 
blocking water circulation. Graphic control rods were raised manually to try and maintain the nuclear reaction. The minimum safe limit was 15 of the 211 rods. Operators were unaware that only one rod was left because the monitoring systems didn't provide real-time data. Despite indicating that the test should not move forward, power and four pumps were disconnected. The temperature in the reactor spiked along with the power output. The water, which moderates the fusion reaction, was replaced by steam. The reactor was running away. The now infamous AZ-5 button was pressed. This would scram the reactor, shutting it down. 210 control rods started to descend at once, meant to stop the reaction. But there was a fatal flaw. What the engineers in the control room didn't know, what no one running the plant knew, was each control rod was tipped with boron carbide. The tips were meant to displace water when in the down position, boosting the output of the reactor. The 210 rods simultaneously moving should have stopped the reaction. Instead, the boron carbide tips displaced what little moderating water was left, creating a flash of power. Power output went from 200 megawatts to 30,000 megawatts in seconds. There was an explosion. During the first hours of the disaster, Gerbachev was lied to about the severity of the situation. Operators wanted to control panic, and the residents of Kiev and Minsk were unaware of the radioactive clouds over their cities. It was a pivotal moment for Gerbachev personally and politically. He used the accident to criticize the Soviet system, poor quality of products and work, and corruption. The disaster at Chernobyl accelerated the looming financial collapse of the Soviet Union. In 1987, Gerbachev announced the withdrawal of 500,000 Soviet troops from the Eastern Bloc. The Warsaw Pact nations were now consuming news and media from beyond the Iron Curtain, and reform was sweeping the nations. The collapse of the Soviet Union was surprisingly bloodless. Only Romania and Moldova had violent transitions. Within a few years, the former Yugoslavian republics would descend into almost a decade of chaos, war, and genocide. Gerbachev always wanted to be a reformer. As a voracious reader and student of history, he knew even during his formative years that the vision of Lenin had been corrupted and the Soviet state was broken. He also wanted to pull the world back from the edge of a cold war that had approached lukewarm at least twice in the first five years of the 1980s. Operation Able Archer in 1983 brought the planet to the very edge of nuclear annihilation. Gerbachev always viewed himself as a reformer. Although the economic, political, and social situations forced these changes, he was dealt a bad hand when he became the general secretary. Had Gerbachev not started the reforms and begun building economic ties with the West, the collapse would have been more severe and could have devolved into civil war. One of the most prominent critics of Gerbachev for not pushing reforms fast enough was Boris Yeltsin, who had become Russia's president in 1994. Under Yeltsin, the Russian oligarch class was born, and a short, unassuming former KGB agent was moving up the political ranks. Almost 40 years later, 
Vladimir Putin went from a frightened and powerless KGB agent as East Germans threatened to storm the Dresden headquarters of the KGB to a de facto dictator working to return to the era of Stalinism and restore the former borders of Russia. In Putin's vision, anyone who is against Russia is a Nazi, and all Nazis must be destroyed. The work of Gerbachev was being torn down before his eyes. The first six months of the Russia-Ukraine war showed that the same corruption that caused a nuclear reactor to melt down in 1986 now permeates the Duma, the halls of the Kremlin, and the Russian military. While Gerbachev is reviled in the modern interpretation of Soviet Union history, he is held in esteem by those in the West. His age of glasnost was seen as ending the Cold War and, for a brief period, helping create an era where anything seemed possible. Mikhail Gerbachev died on August 30, 2022, at the age of 91. In economic news, less than 48 hours after the Ukrainian counteroffensive started, Gazprom announced it was shutting down the Nord Stream 1 pipeline for three days of unplanned maintenance. According to the Russian state energy company, the flow will be cut off to Germany from August 31st to September 3rd. Gazprom throttled back capacity to 40% of normal in June, citing maintenance problems and creating a four-way standoff between Canada, Lithuania, Germany, and Russia over a compressor. Canada yielded to requests to release the gas compressor to Russia on the same day a Russian missile attack hit the center of Venezia, killing more than two dozen, including a four-year-old toddler. The pipeline restarted on July 21st as planned, and service was restored, but only to the previous 40% level. Shortly after, Russia cut back capacity to 20%, claiming another compressor had failed. Gazprom also announced it was suspending all gas deliveries to the French company Engni, which owns a 9% stake in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Gazprom said service would terminate on September 1st due to non-payment, while Engni claims that the Russian state firm was breaking its existing contractual obligations. Engni had slashed the amount of gas it receives from Russia from 17% to 4% since the start of the war, and officials weren't overly concerned about the cuts. European leaders and energy analysts believe that Russia will use natural gas as a weapon during the winter months in an attempt to freeze Europeans, forcing an end of support for the war in Ukraine. European nations' strategic natural gas stockpiles are at 65% to 90% of capacity, providing a 5- to 12-month supply even without taking conservation measures. Government spokesman Olivier Veron reaffirmed France would fill its gas reserves by the end of the summer. He told France Info Radio, quote, We're ahead of schedule, with reserves about 90% full. The ruble improved with an official exchange rate of 60 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices dropped after reports showed global inventory had climbed. West Texas Intermediate, or WTI, dropped to $92 a barrel, and Brent fell to $99 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline dropped to $2.71 a gallon, or $0.72 a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped slightly to $0.82 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. 
And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.